Before we get started, we want to thank our Patreon supporters and remind everyone that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a recurring donation at patreon.com bigbio, or instead, consider making a one-time contribution at our website, bigbiology.org. We'd really prefer not to sell raincoats or flower arrangements to keep the episodes coming, but we need to support our staff, most of whom are students. A different but also very important way to help us out is to spread the word about the podcast. Recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member, or just share your thoughts about episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to get these ideas out to as many people as possible, and social media is a great way to do that. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and comment on and rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, or you just have questions or thoughts about past episodes, get in touch. You can do that on our social media pages or through email addresses on our website. Lastly, we'll soon be recruiting interns for season five. If you're interested in helping us make Big Biology, contact us at info at bigbiology.org. There's a small stipend attached to the position, and as importantly, the chance to get heavily involved in all parts of production, from script writing to social media outreach. Here's the show. Uh, so Marty, a question. What's the better metaphor for an organism, a flame or a clock? Well, I know I'm supposed to say clock, but I really want to say... Wrong. The correct answer is flame. As John Scott Haldane, dad of the famous JBS Haldane, said, a flame, quote, is like an animal in that you cannot stop it, examine the parts, and start it again like a machine. Change is part of its very being, end quote. Yeah, Art, I kind of knew that. We read the same book. A flame, unlike a clock, captures the inherent dynamicity of life. More bluntly, machines can stop, but life cannot. Life's parts are in dynamic equilibrium, evolved to avoid entropy via something we physiologists like to call metabolism. Metabolism forces us to recognize that the essence of life is not the apparent fixity and solidity of living forms, but rather the fluid, dynamic processes that sustain those forms. According to today's guest, Dan Nicholson, a historian and philosopher of biology and a professor at George Mason University, living things are streams of matter and energy that are dynamically stable on different time scales. Unlike clocks, they must constantly change to remain the entities that they are. Dan calls this idea processual biology, and it's also the focus of his new book called Everything Flows. Dan's book, an edited volume of colleagues in his writings, examines what living things are and what they aren't. They are dynamically stable processes. Take Georges Cuvier's favorite metaphor, the whirlpool. In a whirlpool, individual water molecules go in and others come out, but the structure remains in place until it's interrupted by some external event. Living things are like whirlpools, or flames, or tornadoes, but far more stable and enduring. They persist because they bring in energy-bearing molecules from outside themselves, then use this energy to counteract entropy. By exporting the energy eventually as heat into the environment, they sustain their internal orders while increasing the total amount of entropy in the external world. In other words, they avoid breaking the second law of thermodynamics by making it someone or something else's problem. Sound familiar? If not, check out our episodes with Scott Turner and Nick Lane from past seasons. To Dan, what living things aren't is equally important. For much of the past century, biologists have conceived of organisms as machines. But to Dan and his colleague, this metaphor misses the mark quite a bit. First, although materials and fluids flow through some machines like they do through living systems, those materials and fluids don't become parts of the machine. We could put gasoline into our cars and get CO2 and water out the other end, 
but those substances don't get transformed into the seats or the engine or the steering wheel. But peanut butter sandwiches, that's something else entirely. We eat them and something eventually comes out our other ends, but along the way, the components of the sandwich we absorb not only provide us energy, but also become parts of our bodies. A second problem with the life as machine metaphor is that machines can stop, whereas life cannot. Most machines you could dissemble, examine the parts, rebuild it, and voila, you could turn the machine back on. Not so with life. If you take an organism apart or even manipulate it too much, it just stops and there's simply no going back. Life relies on streams that must always be on. A third problem is the capacity for self-repair. Most living things can do it, some unbelievably well, as Mike Levin has told us in the past about planaria, but really no machines can self-repair, or at least not nearly as adeptly as organisms. Collectively, these flaws in the life-as-machine metaphor mean that we might have been doing biology wrong for a long time. On the show today, we talked to Dan about a processual philosophy of biology. He thinks that this point of view could pay off in many ways, in particular for the development of a theory of the organism. Surprisingly, although biology is replete with theories, we still lack a cohesive theory for what organisms are and why they are as they are. Another advantage of Dan's ideas is that it could shift our focus away from reductionism, which is the tendency to break things down into smaller pieces, and toward a new and more productive way of understanding life. To see the flaws in the reductionist approach, consider one of our favorite punching bags on the show, genetic determinism. Genes are routinely construed, implicitly or explicitly, as causal mechanisms of phenotypic function and variation. But as Dan says, the genome is in constant two-way interaction with a cellular context. Far from there being a one-way control of the organism by the genome, genes are just an aspect of factors that influence life. We talk with Dan about the implications of a processual theory for understanding the role of genes in biology, as well as how we might teach a processual mindset to our students and what role agency plays in biology. Overall, we couldn't agree more with Dan's general sentiment that if the living realm is indeed processual, it's time for a major makeover to biology. As Peter Simons put it, things are precipitates of processes. So let's start directing more attention to those processes. And apologies in advance for a little background noise at one point in the show. Dan's landscapers apparently didn't care for his processual philosophy. But they should help you keep machines in mind while listening today. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. So, why the philosophy of biology? Why are you a philosopher? Because you, you alluded to being a molecular biologist or getting a master's degree there. What was the transition, the motivation? I think a good way of describing what it's like to be a philosopher of biology is to think of the distinction between a chef and a food critic. <laughs> you know, chefs are very, very busy trying in the kitchen trying to get everything to work and you know, sweating and getting everything not to overboil and, and, um, and managing a team and under a lot of pressure. And, you know, they do the best they can and they're very good at what they do, but unfortunately don't usually have the opportunity to sample the, you know, the, the, the delights that they come up with. And so the food critic comes, you know, all nice, freshly showered and nicely dressed, comes to the restaurant directly and uh, is served this wonderful a dish and can just uh, reflect on it and um, sample it, enjoy it, think about it compared to other things that he's had in the past. And so that's why it was for me a no-brainer to make this transition. 
from from science to philosophy of science. I've I've never felt so excited about philosophy. Yeah. Did you have some some bad cooking experiences? What, what what happened to the kitchen early for you? Did you cut your finger too many times, or, or what led to your personal transition? I just wasn't very good at it. So I knew I wanted to get into science, um, and I, you know, studied molecular biology and had a sort of a broad uh, broad education in, in 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 the sciences and biology, but. Um, in the lab, I was always, you know, really slow and um, I just didn't enjoy it. I found it very monotonous and those who were good at it, you know, were, were able to, yeah, were, were quick and were able to move from one thing to another quite fast. And that wasn't my case. I, my, what I enjoyed the most was actually, you know, just reflecting on the big questions. And I noticed that uh, scientists on the whole didn't do that. On, you know, in their nine to fives, it was only after, right, when you're, you're having your, your beer in the pub that, uh, that these questions come up. And that's when I was getting most excited. I was thinking, well, I don't want to have to wait, you know, uh, if, I, if I pursue this career to, to sort of the evenings to be able to, to really get engaged. And, um, and so I tried to work out whether there was an opportunity for me to be doing this nine to five rather than, uh, than on these special occasions, you know. And then I also noticed that it is quite common uh, for scientists at some point in their careers, usually towards the end of their careers, especially if they've made it big to start getting invited to discuss the conceptual foundations of the science you know and start getting invited to to not to just present the, the you know the latest results from the lab but actually to reflect and um, friend, a friend of mine uh, calls this the uh, the philopause state you know like uh, like it's like a menopause for for scientists where they go to this philopause where they have a sort of existential existential crisis you know where they start reflecting or dabbling into philosophy right what have i been doing for 30 years <laughs> <laughs> but usually most scientists do this i mean of course they're exceptions but most of most mostly it happens you know towards the end uh so uh, to, you know or if you get a Nobel prize for example right you get a Nobel prize you're not going to be invited necessarily to talk about results in your lab you're usually going to be asked to discuss broader and broader questions so i thought wow this is fascinating this is exactly what i want to do but i guess you know, i can't wait you know 30 years i want to do it now so um so yeah after i finished my um, so I, I wanted to make sure that that was the case. So I, the, the reason why I started thinking this way is because I did a, a year in the U.S. I was studied in the U.K., but I spent a year um, in, at the University of Iowa in this big muscular dystrophy lab. And I just, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it very much, the, the, the lab work. So I returned and I, and I thought, OK, which is the area of biology that I'm most excited about. Um, and at the time I was really into this, you know, these extremophiles, right? And there was Center for Extremophile Research at the University of Bath where I studied. So I said, okay, I'm gonna go and do my master's project there with actually the best professors that I've had at the, um, in my time uh, as well. And, and you know, if, if it turns out that I don't even enjoy it then, then I will know that it's not about the topic, it's about the method. And I didn't, and I didn't enjoy it. So I thought, okay, well, I, I need to, I need to find something else to do. And at the time, um, Ernst Meyer published his last book. In 2000, this was 2004. So he published his last book. You know, age 100, he died a few months later. Called What Makes Biology Unique, which is a collection of essays. You know, short essays on, on actually, the philosophy of biology. You know, essay on how biology relates to physics. Another one on teleology and purpose. Another one on you know the role of mathematics in 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 science and explanation. I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is so cool. This is what I want to do. So it was for me a, a no-brainer. I, I decided that, that I discovered there was this thing called history and philosophy of science, right? Uh, which I had no idea it existed. And I just uh, did a master's degree in HPS, loved it, and then I went to do a PhD, loved it even more, and. Uh, yeah, that's the story. Well, cool. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us um, on the show today. We want to talk about the new book that you've edited with John Dupre called Everything Flows, a title that I absolutely love. 
And the subtitle, I guess, is Towards a Processual Philosophy of Biology. And that'll be the crux of the conversation today. Let's try to hit that big point first. I think it's maybe the, the biggest point there. And it's your your conviction, yours personally, Dupre's too, and probably a lot of the authors, that the world is not really made up of things, but processes, and more specifically, a hierarchy of processes. So a, a quote that I, I want to take from I think it was your your section of the book. A hepatocyte sustains a liver, and a liver sustains an organism by doing things. So your claim is there's this key minimal condition for a position to count as a form of process and ontology, or that you know we want to have a, we want to think about a process ontology. That processes must be in some sense more fundamental than things. So that's a heavy duty series of statements, and you articulate <laughs> exactly what that means in book length form. But in a nutshell, what's the what's the main point there? What do those ideas mean? Well, as you as you point out, it's about capturing an intuition that we have, that many people have, that there's something really fundamental about change and dynamicity that is not captured according to sort of traditional forms of metaphysics that for centuries have assumed that what is most fundamental in the world are things or entities or substances, and that the changes that we observe are changes that happen to things, right? They're, they're secondary. They're, and so that they're, only, they're always going to come second, right, in the, in the order of explanation. That in a way, what we need to explain is change. What doesn't need to be explained, what the default, if you like, is, is, is stasis. And so we think that's wrong. The, the whole project that led to the production of this book was predicated on, the, on exploring that question of what would it mean to begin with a different set of assumptions. So what would it mean to begin with the assumption that what is basic in the universe is change and dynamicity and that what we need to explain is why things are stable or they look stable. By which processes do this stability attained and maintained? And this is, a, of course, a project that you can explore. It's a, it's a, what philosophers would call a naturalistic form of metaphysics, simply meaning that it assumes that metaphysics has to be done in conversation with science rather than from the armchair. So it just basically means that science provides the raw material for us to uh, develop metaphysical sort of statements and, and draw conclusions. And of course, as I was saying, this you can do in relation to any area of science. But what we were interested in is whether this framework, this way, the, these assumptions, whether these work uh, for biology, you know, do these provide us with a, a, a better starting point to think about the living world? And that's what we explored. And so we, we want to be careful because, you know, unless you're willing to spend six or seven hours on this and listeners are willing to hang on for that long, um, we probably can't go through the entire history of, you know, this idea. But maybe it's useful to just really briefly try to say something about the history of these ideas because you just said it. You're talking about a profound reset. This is not just some minor tweak of existing ideas. This is a really major shift, which involves biology, but is broader than biology. It's the sciences. So what have those shifts looked like, just maybe in physics or, or something else? What do the shifts look like, and how have they been productive in a way that the historical alternative wasn't? Yeah, well, if you look at the history, especially well, the history of philosophy, but also the history of science, pr the processual approach or standpoint has always been the sort of radical, unexplored, alternative, um, the reactionary one. So you can actually tell quite neat story, uh, neat history of the philosophy of philosophy or, or, or of science, where it seems to be the case that we've, we've just assumed since Parmenides and Plato that we can think very, very fundamentally about the world as being constituted of substances, right? And that the way we classify the world is according to perhaps certain essential 
essential properties that these class of substances have and the way we think about again change is basically uh, derived from the properties that we may want to attribute to these particular substances or entities that we want to explain right so throughout most of that that history um, you actually need to look carefully at sort of mavericks or <laughs> individuals who want who were not satisfied with that view and explore alternatives so the the author that is usually credited with beginning this reaction towards substance, at least in the Western tradition, is Heraclitus or Heraclitus. And, you know, that's where the uh, the title of the book comes from. Everything flows. It captures his very famous aphorism that, you know, if you're, if you're walking, if you if you see uh, right a stream, it seems like it's completely stable, but actually the, the stream is never, it's never the same, right? What seems stable is in fact only stable because it is being actively maintained. And I, and I you know, we, we thought that this was such a profound observation, especially when you think about life, right? So what is the most distinctive thing about life? What is the thing that, for example, physiology uh, is concerned with? Well, well you know, homeostasis, you know, the, the, the idea that living systems have to constantly maintain a, a given state in, in being in an environment where everything is constantly changing, right? So there you see very clearly that the question, the really key question isn't, you know, why things change, but actually why things seem to stay the same. And when things don't stay the same, you know, disease comes in, you know, things go wrong, death ultimately, right? So you can also think about medicine in these terms as well. Streams being diverted, yeah. Exactly. So just with regard, just going back to the history, right? So um, the advent of modern science in the 17th century was also a revival of certain essentialistic and substantivist views from ancient the ancient world. So, you know, the, the atomism, which was also an, a very an ancient idea, is, is revived. And with that revival, you get again this uh, fixity, this notion of fixity that is so important. The, the other aspect of, the, of the, you know, the metaphysical worldview of modern science, which I've been particularly interested in, is this, this, this machine view, you know, this, this idea of the universe as a giant piece of clockwork, because I think this has been extremely influential. You know, and I'm not, I don't understand why not everyone is talking about it and why I'm having often to be the one uh, pointing to this, because this view of the world and of any, everything in it codifies so many particular commitments that we then have in the way that we explain phenomena and the attitudes towards it. And that clockwork view is a, is a very static one. And so having or proposing a dynamic perspective, a processual one, is, is in some sense challenging the worldview that gave, gave rise to modern science, right? It's, it's a tall order. So that why it was, that's why, you know, it's difficult, actually. To, it's not difficult. Actually, it's quite easy to tell a history of processualism, as we do in the chapter, because there aren't that many people. You can just say, well, you know, in the 17th century, you have this author, and the 18th century. So it's actually, you know... In the, Here's the history in three pages. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. right? And uh, things got a little more interesting. In the 19th century, you have appeals to process in certain areas in, in philosophy, you know, the work of people like Hegel and some of the German romantics. And then, uh, you know, you have the dialectical materialism. I mean, the ideas that come from Marxism, which can be applied to nature, and that view is also very dynamic, and that's kind of interesting too. And actually, a lot of biologists in the 20th 20th century with Marxist leanings have tried to develop a metaphysics of nature based on on that dynamic dialectical view. So we you know we note that there's a, an interesting similarity there, although we haven't explored it. And um, and then then what happens? What happens is that you have these big revolutions in physics, right? You've got quantum mechanics and you've got special relativity, and that leads to a crisis in the way we think about nature. And um, a philosopher, a physics turned philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, famously develops a processual view of nature on the basis of what he thought we needed what he thought best accounted for the new physics. And so he thought that the new physics required us, it was screaming out uh, for a processual way of thinking about the world. 
And a lot of biologists in the early 20th century got very excited about this. And they thought, wow, for the first time, we don't need to look up at physics, you know, having this sense of inferiority and having to always rely on these ideas of physics. For the first time, it looks like physics is basically looking at ideas that we as biologists have been thinking about for ages, you know, uh, um, <laughs> these dynamic ideas. So I've also been, as a historian, interested in looking at these, at the work of these authors in the interwar period, 1920s, 1930s, who actually wanted to develop a processual view. And these called the organicist, the organicist philosophy of ideas, so that we discussed that as well. But, you know, uh, what happened, we all know the story, right? You have uh, the molecular biology revolution and the modern synthesis. These are two major events in 20th century biology, and both represent a return to hardcore, you know, reductionist, substantivalist uh, views of, of the organism and ultimately of nature. And so what we basically were doing in our book is kind of, Maybe it's time again to to work out that these views haven't been having given us everything we want to know about life, and that perhaps it's time again for a new revival of, of, of a processual view. So, so you just you sort of you know po- pose this backsliding from the early 1920s as stemming in part from the rise in power of of molecular biology. And I, I believe that, and, and Marty and I have talked a lot on the show about, you know, how we think that, that molecular biologists have had sort of too much power over the sort of path and philosophy of, of biology. But I want to ask a, a related question, which is, is there something also about just societal transformations in the relationship to factories and things and the mechanization that came out of the world wars? And did that embed this sort of machine mindset in a way that goes even far beyond what was happening in biology? Is it just just biology is reflecting something about a broader societal focus suddenly on mechanization? Yeah, that's an extremely good point. And one probably that I haven't emphasized enough, because absolutely, the reason why you have this reaction against the machine view, and actually, I would say happens a bit earlier, happens probably around the First World uh, War, you have this this concern about the mechanization of everything. And that, of course, spills over biology specifically. But I mean, the reason I think I haven't really discussed that a lot is that it, you don't see it very explicitly in the work of these authors. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a motivation. And I think that's a, that's a very good observation. I want to also just ask about this you alluded to this idea of, um, you know, a stream is not the same stream from one moment to the next. And that's because like the water molecules that are there at that particular moment flow away and they're replaced by other water molecules that are coming from upstream. And so there's this sense in which this thing that we call the stream depends upon these these gradients in which energy and materials is is flowing continuously, right? And you have this, this really great part in the book where you talk about an alien coming to examine dogs on Earth, a real dog and a robotic dog, and scanning them. And the particularity of this alien is that it only recognizes things by the constituent parts. And so the alien goes away, comes back some years later, and comes upon these dogs again, and it only recognizes the robotic dog as being the same thing. It, it doesn't recognize the real dog, and that's because all organisms have lots of turnover of materials at, at different, different rates uh, in their bodies. And so is that the sort of organismal version of the stream metaphor? And you know, what, what does that mean for the identity of organisms over time? Yeah, it was a way of trying to capture a kind of change that we usually are not, are not aware of because of the way we look with the way we perceive the world right we tend to focus on on the stability of shapes and we're not aware of the reconstitution of matter that is happening that enables that stability of shape right so i just thought of um 
this actually goes back to my my PhD days. The really interesting thing to me is that I, it was originally in my thesis this, this thought experiment of the alien. Uh, before I was thinking about before I was thinking about processes, it was I was I came up with that uh, thought experiment to talk about the difference between organisms and machines. Right, that's why I talk about these two dogs. But then when I returned to Exeter, which I had originally done my PhD at Exeter, and you know, and John was 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 developing this big process project. So well, I got something perfect that I haven't used in a long time. This thought experiment, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's how it came to be. And yeah, and so the there are lots of ways in which one can argue for a, a processual view. What we wanted to do, and this is something that I really was insisting on, is not to appeal to complex empirical phenomena to make the case. Let's go for the most basic, the most fundamental properties that everyone can agree on. You don't need any understanding of biology. What does anyone know about life, even if you've never taken a biology uh, course? Well, you know, you know about metabolism, you know about development. Okay, so yeah, let's use these two because, you know, these two, the third one, symbiosis, you know, and ecological interdependence, again, you know, if you can, you can phrase that in very basic terms as well. But the point is that you, you, you can make the case, right, drawing to science, drawing on, empir- on, on biology, you can make the case in a way that you can't be challenged, at least on the empirical side, right? I mean, who's going to deny that metabolism is fundamental for life? Right, or that, that all living beings undergo these series of transformations during development, and so that's why it was very important. Was, I think it was a good thing to focus on these basic facts that everyone can agree on, and how, if you look carefully about what they tell us, what they're telling us, right, is that a view of biological entities that is based on some substance metaphysics is, is just doesn't capture the nature of what you want to look at. And you know, you could argue that that's been a big problem in biology for centuries. You know, that you, on the one hand, we know certain things intuitively about what organisms are like because we are organisms and we, we are, are engaging with other organisms. And yet the tools that we use in science to make sense of them have been ones that have assumed that organisms are perhaps the same as machines or you know, inanimate entities, right? So you have that, you've had that clash historically, you know? And, um, anyway, but I'm, I'm, I'm not answering your question. So with regards to the alien. Yeah, I mean, it's, I was just trying to capture that, that, that idea that if you focus on matter rather than form, okay, and if you were a, a being that was like that, then um, and you were able to, you were able to track changes in in matter. Then your world would be one where nothing stays the same, at least with regards to to the living world, right? And so to us that's not obvious because we we don't see those changes necessarily, right? They happen um, at different in, in a hierarchy, right? So the faster the turnover, uh, that usually is you know the lower the level of organization, the faster the turnover, right? So the turnover of cells in a, in a tissue. Is at a particular rate, but the turnover of proteins in the cell in that tissue is much faster. You know, so the orders of magnitude faster. So you just can't see that at the microscopic level. You can only do that if you if you look, and also only if you look with the techniques that enable you to see time, right? Because a lot of the techniques that have been used in biology traditionally have been ones that have eliminated the t- temporal dimension completely, right? So think of how we've traditionally done anatomy, you know, or physiology has often been through staining and fixing and we had to do it, right? We had to eliminate time in order to look at it. And by doing that, we've maybe, you know, given up the very thing that is most important, which is the that the fact that the temporal dimension changes what you're looking at. So let me ask another thing about levels of organization, which you just brought up, and that is to think about what, what it is that the alien actually would be scanning for and recognizing as being the same or different. And so, for example, at somewhat higher levels of organization within the dog, you have maybe cells and epithelia and, and organs. And I can see that those might not be recognizable from one week to the next if you're going back and looking for exactly the same 
cell structure, exactly the same organ structure. But at a, at a still lower level of organization, you know, if you're starting to look at molecules and atoms within those structures, those are sort of fungible in a way that the higher level structures are not, right? Like you can't, you can't distinguish one hydrogen atom from another. And so, you know, embedded in this levels of organization idea is this sort of, you know, at the lowest levels, everything is the same because they're all just atoms. And so I guess, I guess the question is, at what level are things the same and different? And does that say something about where this stream metaphor is most powerful? Yeah, I think it really is a question that can only be answered I mean, contextually, depending on what you want to, depending on what you're focusing on. Because I think the idea of a hierarchy of levels goes all the way up. I mean, you can even, I don't think we mentioned this in the text, but you could even think of a population, right, of zebras, say, as being the, the, you know, the entity that you're interested in, which where you also have the exchange of the components. You don't really care, maybe, because you're just focusing on the dynamics of the population level. That may be relevant in ecology or certain areas of population genetics or whatever. Uh, but if you're in, if you're a physiologist or a developmental biologist, then, <laughs> then you do care about the individuals that make up those populations. And then maybe what matters is the exchange that's happening at a lower, at a level below. If you're a, a cell biologist, then you don't really care about the organs, you know, whatever you care about the about what's going on. So, so it really depends what you're interested in, right? At the, at the molecular biology level, again, it goes even one level down. But I think you're making an interesting point with regards. I mean, you say. Of course, even at the atomic level, this happens. But I mean, I don't have a good answer, uh, but I have an intuition that something changes when we get to the biological, at the biological level of organization, simply because what you said, right, in, in, in chemistry and in physics, it is often the case that we don't worry about the individual property, the properties of individual particles. So say in, in models or in statistical mechanics, when you're looking at the behavior of a gas, say, okay, so you may say, well, we can explain that in terms of the particles that make it up, right? We can, um, you know, we have these pretty powerful generalizations that we can make about what is likely to happen, right? These are statistical. And what, what these do is they enable us to not worry about the individuals, right? We focus on the behavior of the gas as a whole. In fact, it doesn't make sense to talk, say, about temp the temperature of one molecule. These are all parameters that refer to at the macroscopic level. So at least in physics, it seems to be the case that we don't necessarily worry about the properties of individuals when we're, when we're explaining certain phenomena. Whereas in biology, you know, we can bring Ernst Meyer back, uh, yeah, who I mentioned at the beginning, right? So we've got this idea of population thinking, right? That um, we always need to remember that even when you're dealing with populations, that the, the differences between individuals matters because we, many biologists care about variation. Right, so maybe, maybe I'm bringing a whole new set of problems you know, on the conversation, but just to say that to be interested in variation means to be interested simultaneously on populations and individuals, right? Because you can't have variation if you're, if you're looking at only one flower. You need lots of flowers to, for the variation, for the concept itself to make sense. So what does that tell you? It tells you you're interested in the whole, but it also means you're interested, it means that you're recognizing that the differences in that population in a way that a physicist doesn't care, can say, well, you know, there's just noise, it's, very, it's just deviation from the mean. So that's why, I'm sorry, I wasn't very articulate, Art, but I, this is a way in which you may think, you may begin to think about the difference in the way physicists and biologists think about the relation between individuals and wholes and levels of organization. But, but I, think, I think you also have a really good point that for a population ecologist, zebras might in fact be fungible, right? Yeah, of course, there's differences from one zebra to the next, but maybe... For some classes of biological problems, those just don't matter. And one zebra you can substitute for the other. Right. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. Some classes of problems. I mean, I, I, I'm always sensitive to this sort of, you can move to another level of organization and then sort of disregard variation in other levels. That's unsatisfying to me. I think the structure of variation across among and within levels is a really important problem. It's something that we talk about a lot. It's, I think what integrative biology that art and art and me do it's it's the core of what it represents but i don't want to go too far down that that rabbit hole for now except i guess to say here we, that, here we go down the rabbit hole <laughs> well yeah because we're going to go down the rabbit hole there's a little bit here dan you're a philosopher and art and me are not so there's there's sort of a little bit of tension or at least an opportunity to try to find common ground here but let's do a little bit more with this processual i want to you i want to sort of use your words to articulate we've been saying maybe what biology is not what it has been and what's been missing. And we keep invoking time and process and change and those kinds of things. But I think we have to be more explicit about what that is to get to the why it matters, which is you know the whole point of the conversation. You say that the machine way of thinking about life is, it's been around forever. It continues to be pervasive. It's not very useful. What you want to replace it with and what Scott Turner and some other folks that we've talked to on the podcast also seem to want to do is to recognize living systems as these complex entities that exist far from thermodynamic equilibrium. Those are the processes. It's sort of what is it that keeps these equilibria say, sustained when entropy should not allow them to, to stick around anymore? Is that a fair summary? I mean, is that what I'm missing? Is that the essence of this processual way of thinking that largely hasn't been baked into biology yet? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways to empirically motivate this position. So to appeal to thermodynamics is one way to, to, to argue for the importance of dynamicity and for the fact that organisms are actually streams rather than machines. We're going to use metaphors. It's not the only way, but it's one that I think is um, helpful because no one, again, denies the reality of non-equilibrium thermodynamics as an area, you know, as a branch of physics. And so what we're doing by saying that organisms are streams because... And, and, and we're, you know, when we're saying that organisms are dissipative structures, to use the language that Prigogine came up with when he was thinking about self-organization, is essentially to ground any biological proposition on something that we feel is more rigorous, right, perhaps, the physical foundation. And so that assuages any worries that anyone may have about, you know, saying anything about you know, organisms being mystical or, you know, it's basically saying, no, 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 it's the other way around. <laughs> we always come back to that. <laughs> Why does that always come up? Yeah, it's the it's the other way around. It's like, no, 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 we're actually saying, oh, you want to go rigorous? Let's do it. Okay, organisms are, from a physical perspective, these systems, okay, there are systems that have to maintain their organization by constantly bringing in matter and energy from the environment so that they attain this steady state. If they lose the steady state, they die. It's an irreversible process. And that you can think of, Everything that organisms does uh, ultimately is being reducible to that, even if that in practice may not necessarily be helpful. But uh, you know at least, right, that whatever else organisms are, what can't be denied is that they're self-organizing systems. I mean, it's puzzling to me because it, is, it isn't something that often comes up in biology. If you really press a biologist, they'll say, well, of course. And yet it doesn't usually feature in the way biologists explain certain phenomena, right? So it's a reminder, okay, that you, you can't provide a physical explanation for certain capacities that organisms have, okay, in a way that is not, shouldn't be controversial, shouldn't be problematic. And yet it's a way of thinking about them physically that is very different from the traditional mechanistic, reductionistic, deterministic view that has dominated the biological discourse since the 17th century, right? So it's saying, okay, I'm giving you an alternative, and I'm going. I'm going to anticipate your your protest that is not scientific by saying I'm grounding it in physics, and I'm going to show to you that 
this grounding leads to really interesting implications for how you should think about biology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and that's fair. I imagine that the tension between philosophy and biology usually is here are the ideas, and the empiricists come right back with, well, what do we measure? Right. This is this is all well and good, but what's the difference in what do we measure? And I mean, I think it might be useful if we go back to the alien looking at the robot versus the living dog. You and Art started to talk a little bit about what we would measure, how we would tell. If we looked this deeply, atoms maybe look to be the same. The piece that I didn't hear you say anything about, and I don't remember reading anything about in the book, but Art and I have become in love with over the course of doing this podcast, is the concept of information. We've talked with Sarah Walker. We've talked with Paul Davies. We've talked with Carl Friston. You you just a minute ago really well articulated that at the different levels of organization, we care about the variation. Physiological level, certain types of variation means death. Other types of variation means fitness. The population level, certain types of variation means evolution. Other types of variation, you know, who knows? But isn't the variation that we care about the sort of instantiation of information? This is the thing that distinguishes one system from the other. And Sarah Walker, I think we talked to her way back in episode nine, what she and others are advocating for now in the search for life is less of a search for things and more of a search for processes. So you guys are talking very similar, but Sarah is being very specific about its information that is the difference between you know what we have done and what we might do. So what do you think about information? Is that something that we could or should measure with regard to the processual philosophy? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I guess this is going to get things, we're going to enter a particularly interesting phase in the conversation because I disagree. I disagree with uh, with some of the things that you've said, right? Um, yeah, okay. And I think here's where the historian in me is just shouting out, you know, because. So, okay, let's talk about information theory and, and the application of the idea of, of whether or information is a useful concept in, in biological explanation, for example. You look at contemporary biology, especially molecular biology, and it's everywhere, right? Okay, fine. So has it always been there? No. Uh, It's a concept that emerges from the war effort, right? It's a concept from the 1940s that then forms part of this new enterprise called cybernetics that everyone gets for a time really excited about. Uh, Wiener writes his book in the 40s and in the 1950s, it's all about cybernetics. and, And that movement is all about trying to break down boundaries between different kinds of systems by using common notions such as feedback and information. Wiener's book is actually called Control and Communication in the Animal and in the Machine. So what actually he was trying to do actually is say, well, if you use these certain concepts, we can eliminate these boundaries. We can we can just remove these boundaries and, and use this common language. And so okay, so that's super interesting. So that we can't just talk about information as we talk about I don't know matter and energy. At least historically, it's not something that's always been there. It's a concept that was coined to make sense of well, actually, of the original context are very different from the biological context, right? It has to do with uh, with, with communication. But you also find that uh, the molecular biology revolution. One of the things that is very distinctive about it is the the extremely surprising and fruitful import of this concept. Right? It's just brought in, and a lot of people start talking about information very quickly. The first people actually to use it. This is interesting. Is well, not the first, the second. Uh, the second time this is used is actually in in the second of uh, Watson and Crick's papers in 53, talking about DNA. They already talk about information there. And so you have this idea that information has something to do with, you know, with inheritance and DNA, and these terms become closely interconnected. 
And already then in the 1950s, you have people trying to get more rigorous about what we should mean by information, because it seems to be a metaphor almost out of control, right? It, it replaced a previous discourse that was focused on specificity. So people used to talk about specificity, biochemists, immunologists used to talk about specificity, right? And if you look at the work of people like Linus Pauling and others, it's all about specificity that's replaced by information. And then you have the assumption that there's something really heavy ontologically, you know, it's a sort of philosophical word, really important, as, you know, that is independent from us, right? That is out there about information. It seems to be a way of measuring order of some kind. And we know that organisms are very orderly. And so you've got these strong intuitions that if we're going to have a good story at the molecular level of life, that information is going to play an important role. And yet already in the 50s, you have the first total disasters that, that emerge from the attempt to get rigorous on how we measure information. So you have conferences that organize very, very prominent physicists and biologists come together to say, okay, well, you know, like that's actually one that I, I have the proceedings, the use of information theory in biology from 1956, I think, what you have. Uh, how much information is there in a cell or in a, in a person? You know, what kind of calculation do you need to do there? And it quickly becomes apparent that the term is just not being used in a sufficiently rigorous way. And so what you have is a development, right, of theoretical proposals that try to get clear on what the notion of information should mean. But then the problem with doing that is then that you're not really describing what scientists are doing because the scientists don't care about rigor in that way. They're just using information in a very sort of loose sense. And maybe the possibility arises that maybe it, the reason why it is so popular is because it's semantically flexible. You know, it's a good thing that it's not super specific because as long as you and your fellow biologists understand each other, then it's okay when we talk, when we talk about information. So, sorry, this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but just to say that Having that awareness of that history has made me very cautious and skeptical to, first of all, want to attribute anything ontological, again, that word, real, to information in the way that people talk about matter and energy, say. And this was, again, something that you got that goes back to cybernetics. So the cybernetics are the first ones saying we need to no longer just talk about matter and energy, but also talk about information. But then when you look at what Wiener means by information is quite different from what Shannon means by information. It doesn't seem to be, a, a, for me personally, a, a seem historically at least, to have been a good way of trying to get consensus uh, about what is actually the nature of biological order, which is arguably what we're interested in explaining if we're interested in the cell. So in the philosophy of biology literature, which, you know, unfortunately is not well you know, known, I guess, uh, outside of, of, you know, biologists don't read much philosophy of biology literature, there's been this wonderful sort of tradition of authors who philosophically have tried to basically point to the dangers of rarefying this language and that um, information, perhaps, um, you know, when we talk about developmental information, what do we mean? Okay, when we talk about if genes code that they, they had this information for, are we just talking about information relating to the, the transcription and translation of bases to amino acids, or is there something phenotypic about it? And there is this constant sliding back and forth between these that leads to you know, a lot of confusion. And I think if, if there is something that philosophers of biology are trying to do is to eliminate confusion, which is why in my community, um, talk of information is usually something that you need to really justify and be at least aware that, uh, that it's not just something that we can assume exists in the way that people like maybe Sarah Walker assume, you know, that's what we're looking for. Information, let's, let's just say that's what, that's what is distinctive of life. Let, let, let me agree with you in a particular way and then maybe push back in a, in a different way. And is, is one way of agreeing with what you just said is to recognize that no one has developed a probe that's like a thermometer 
you can't stick a probe in something and measure how much information it has. And, you know, like in the same way that you could do an elemental analysis on an organism and, and discover how many atoms of carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and, you know, hydrogen it has, you just can't do that. You can't, you can't go in and measure the amount of information, right? And so is that, that I think that maybe is one of the fundamental problems here. Yeah, I mean, there's one really nice example that is given by one of my, um, of the organicists, these authors that I like from the 1920s, but who, someone you may be familiar with, uh, Paul Weiss, who was a very famous um, Viennese-American uh, cell biologist. He was actually the president of the uh, National Science Foundation. It was very important in the development of cell biology in America. He um, also went through this philopause, right? And in the, when he's, you look at his papers in the 60s and 70s, and he's uh, pushing back against molecular biology, he actually takes that example, uses the example of a vial with a chick embryo, right? And then you have another vial with the embryo which has been um, blended. And then another vial with the, uh, with it's been homogenized because it's been chemically treated. And you've got these three and you say, okay, look, from the, le from the at the level of the, the material and maybe the information, there's no difference, but obviously you, we completely you know, we need to be able to capture that which we want to explain as biologists, which is what makes something alive, right? So anyway, um, these are all these are old ideas. There's nothing new about being skeptical, uh, or you know, these are just wanting to recapture some of these skepticisms so that allow allow us to be rigorous in why we talk about information today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I hear you. And that that example you just said is is interesting in relation to my my other point that I wanted to make, which is that and and maybe this is an attempt to sort of rescue information in this this context. And and that is that at some level, conceiving of cells or organisms as machines means describing the parts list, right? And so you could you can put the parts together. And and your point of view is is that we should be focused much more on the the streams that are flowing through these organisms and the sort of you know non equilibrium dynamic equilibria that that characterize organisms. And I would say that, you know, couldn't information be characterized as actually the biological reality of the relationships among all of the parts, right? So it's not it's not a parts list. It's not the streams. It's something in between that sort of allows those parts to facilitate the streams going going through them. Is isn't that what information is at some level? And, and in that sense, in that sense, if you if you blend up a chick you know, in a vial, you actually are getting rid of information because you're destroying the relationships among those parts, even though the parts are all still there. Okay, well, what, what Weiss actually said, to go back to the example of the vial, is that what is destroyed is organization. And maybe what we, what you're suggesting is a connection between organization and information, which I, as a philosopher, would like to, would have to probe you to ensure that I'm clear on how these two notions connect. Because look, organization has been something that biologists have known is what it is what makes living systems distinctive since the 18th century. You know, Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, coined the term self-organization to refer to organisms. It goes all the way back to the 1790s, okay? So there's nothing new to say that organization is fundamental and it's going to be the thing you want to explain if you want to come to terms with living systems. What I'm not clear is how that notion that, that was introduced or coined in the context of working out differences, you know, in, 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 in scripts, linguistic scripts, how is that in any way connected to, or how can it help us, right, make sense of, of relations. I think, you know, the, the idea of organization. So maybe you want to say a little more about how information captures the... Well, I mean, I'm not clear on that either. Right. Well, that's, that's the issue, right? So I'm not, I'm not <laughs> okay. going to be able to do that. Yeah. Which is maybe a way of saying that, I mean, maybe this is confirming your point that organization is not information, except that, you know, I guess, I guess like in the way that Shannon thought about it, I mean, the organization is bits through time, right? It's it's the relationship of bits through time. And and that's still like a 
ultra simplified zeros and ones version of the relationships among the parts within living organisms. I don't know. I guess that's my attempt at a save, and I may, I may just be wrong yeah. there. So no, no, I. I- I think I think I think I agree with you, Art, because organization is that sort of process by which previous experiences. I mean, what what persists is the thing that wasn't torn apart in the past by entropy in a way. I mean, that's how I think about organizations. Let's let's bring genes into the conversation, right? Because if because if I mean, Dan, I think you want to pick on genes in many other ways than Art and I might might do. Um, we preach about the the limitations of genetic determinism probably too much on the show, but um, I think there's a, a statement. In one in your chapter that is uh, about how genes, how we should think about genes in biology, and I mean in the spirit of what we've been talking about, thinking about genes as instantiations of information, such that flows of energy and materials are working in a way that you know these complex systems, these dynamic, uh, far from thermodynamic equilibrium systems, are kept in place. Genes are doing that. And that's just one instantiation of many types of organization in biology that could potentiate those energy and materials fluxes, right? So I mean, let's just change all of this sort of soapboxing around into a question. How do you think we should think about genes in the context of your processual theory? I can answer that question twice. So with regards to how you, how you think of genes with relation to the specific metaphor that I propose of the no, it's not really mine, it's, it's an old tradition, but I try to advocate this stream of life uh, idea. So let's, let's go in into a little bit more detail about what that entails. It entails that, your, that the order that you find, because organisms are ordered, is not a consequence of any individual molecule in, that makes up that complex. So already we're really far away from a genetic center, the gene-centered view, you know, or the, the, the gene view of molecular biology which suggests that the complexity of the cell is in some sense, ultimately and in principle, derivable, even if we are practically not able yet to, uh, to do this, from the order, order, it would quote, with scare quotes, encoded in the, in, the, in the genetic material. And, you know, when you think about machines, that's also how you think, right? So the order of the machine is reflected in the blueprint or the program that exists in prior to the emergence of that machine, right? You first have a blueprint or first you have a program. And then, you know, the order uh, is just essentially a reflection of something that already exists, which is why we talk about design, because that's what the notion of design is capturing. What is design? Design is some sort of plan, some often some preconceived plan that is then instantiated in any material thing, you know, which is why you know, we shouldn't really talk about design in the context of evolutionary biology, for example. That's another an, another entire conversation which we could have if you're interested, but maybe we don't have time. So in the case of, of molecular biology, right, um, you have that view where genes play that role of being the repository, being the repository of order. In wanting to move away from the machine view to the stream view, what we are now having to deal with is the question of where, you know, where order emerges. And I've just said, you know, that we can think of order drawing on the work of people like Prigogine and others as uh, a systemic property of the system, where, of course, genes are going to play a role. It would be foolish to say that genes play no role in this picture, but it's going to play a very different role. It's not, they're not going to be the alpha and omega, you know, the, the uncaused causes, you know, the, un, the un, unmoved mover or whatever, right? It's actually going to be uh, maybe a repository of successful modes of self-organization, that perhaps that is what is being kept in the, uh, in the genetic material. Um, 
because organisms don't spontaneously organize like other dissipative structures. We need to make sense of that difference, right? So if you think of a vortex or a flame or a tornado, these are they don't have history. They don't have. They they just spontaneously emerge. In the case of an organism, there's always a pre-existing organism, right? So that you need to explain inheritance. There is no inheritance in these simple dissipative structures. So maybe that's again where genes come in, not to specify what has to happen, but to give some more fidelity to the to the organization that is going to be transmitted. Because again, that's another difference, right? So I've never said that the stream of life captures all the intuitions or all the things we want to explain about organisms. But one, so one thing that it doesn't capture is again, that stability, right? And may, again, that's maybe where genes play a role. But, and so that's my first answer. The second answer with regards to how genes uh, play a role in a processual view, again, the history is useful here. So I don't want to you know, give a history lesson, but if you look at the history of genetics, what you quickly realize is that genes were initially introduced as a, as a heuristic way of describing patterns of inheritance. And there, there was no reality attributed to genes. So there's a, a posterior reification of, an, of a heuristic notion into something ontological, which is not unlike what's happened, I think, with information. Whereas at some time you would have gone to a genetics conference and everyone would have been talking about genes as, some, as, as, a, as a marker, as a way of thinking about patterns of inheritance to a time where genes are taken to be the real things that everyone needs to explain, right? And given that that transition happened, and if you're historically sensitive to that, then you're going to be more cautious uh, in uh, ascribing anything of ontological weight to these genes. And that maybe um, to talk about genes is to provide a very useful idealization or abstract description of, of, of patterns of inheritance. Again, this is not to this is not to deny right the reality of the causal processes that are taking place. Okay, so there's no I'm not in conflict with any finding of genetics. It's just that my interpretation of it is one that does not ascribe to genes that sort of role. And, and even more so, you know, you wouldn't want to, of course, ascribe agency to genes in the way that some people have done. We've become so obsessed with genes that it's just been it's just been easy to slide from attributing all the order to them to attributing also agency, right? That they do things, right? And and I think that my position prevents you from, from slipping in that way because it reminds you that genes can't possibly have all those properties. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that comes through super clearly in your in your paper. Um, we wanna scale out a little bit and talk about some of the other parts of your, of your um, chapter, but just one last question on this front. Two or three episodes ago, we talked to Arvid Ogren about his recent book on the selfish gene concept, which, you know, if you had to pick a concept in the last hundred years in biology, there's not really a, a more powerful one than especially something that's percolated into the public sphere than the selfish gene. What's your take on that idea? I mean, again, I think I can figure out what it is based on just what you were just saying, but um, yeah, how, how, how do you think about the concept of the selfish gene? I think it's, it captured the public imagination, um, uh, right? And it, it really has played a instrumental role in how the public thinks about what genes do in a way that is not necessarily helpful. It's an idea that is not obviously really completely new to Dawkins, right? It's, there's a tradition, you know, Williams and, and others, so you, where you can already see this this, this emphasis on, on, on genes and the gene I view. Um, I wouldn't want to say that it's a view that is um, useless. I think it's actually been very useful in some contexts, but I think it's important as a philosopher to distinguish between usefulness and truthfulness. You know, something can be very useful and just be, strictly speaking, wrong. It's just not what's actually going and that on, and that's fine. It, it can st still mean, you can still, you know, we have to simplify reality as scientists, right? Or how we do that, we do that through abstracting away complexity and also through introducing fictional assumptions. That's when we idealize something, you know, we assume infinite populations in 
morals and ecology and things like this, right? We know that's not true, but that's fine because we're aware. And that, that same thing applies to, to ideas such as the selfish gene, that for certain epistemic exercises and projects, research programs, it may be helpful to think about genes in that way or think, thinking, yeah, but, but ultimately if we want to have a theory of the organism, of life, or also of genes, then perhaps we, we should explain how something can be useful and, and yet not be right. Um, so that's what I would say. It's, it's, uh, there's, no, I think, no point in. It's already, I mean, suffered enough. At least in among philosophers of biology, it's, it's very easy to, you know, criticize the work of people like Dawkins and say. But you know, I think that the work of people are, are going to doing is very important because it's demonstrating that, um, yeah, that there's still, you know, one can still still make it, make a case for the genide view, and it may actually be a super useful way of thinking about things. And and I should say the same thing goes for the machine view. You know, despite its ontological theoretical problems, I wouldn't want to deny the value of sometimes using these models in particular contexts. Just be careful not to infer truth from use. You know, just something may be valuable, but it doesn't mean that it gives you an adequate description of what's actually going on or what the system actually is like. And the same thing again goes for the substance process difference, right? It, I think that it makes sense ontologically to talk about the world in this dynamic sense, but that doesn't mean that it can be helpful to think about biological systems and biological phenomena in a more sort of static, in a more substantival thing-like way. You just said something that I think might make a nice segue to a, a new section of this this conversation. And you, you mentioned this phrase, um, theory of the organism. And I've, I've latched onto this because Marty and I have been batting back and forth this idea over the last couple of years that we, we really lack a good, cohesive, powerful theory of the organism. And we've been talking about various ways of trying to construct that. So what, you know, what would it take to actually develop something fresh and new? And, and I have to say, I, I said to Marty after reading your solo chapter in the book, like, holy crap, this, this guy like has identified some of these pillars of what a theory of the organism could be. And it, it felt like, really kind of shocking and, and fresh and new in a, in a really interesting way. And so, so I guess, I guess let me start with a really broad question of what do you think, uh, in the end, a theory of the organism would look like and what would it do and what do we have to do to get there? And then maybe after you say that answer those next questions, let's dig in just a, a few of the details of the pillars that you've already identified. Yeah. So again, I'm here standing on the shoulders of giants. So there's been a lot of people, um, particularly this again, organicist tradition that I mentioned in the in the in the book and in some of my other work, what the, essentially what it, what they were trying to do is develop a theory of the organism. That literally was their project. Because to mention a quote from one of the authors, Ludwig von Bertalanffy, uh, who also is the founder of systems theory, he said that uh, the organism should play a role in biology that is analogous to the role that that energy plays in physics. Right. E.S. Russell, another uh, important um, organicist, said that the organism should be ultimately where all biological explanations begin and where they all end. If you want to explain something about inheritance, that's fine. But if you want it to be meaningful biologically, you need to relate it back to the organism. These are old ideas. You know, there's wonderful to be to see them now having a second life. But if you look at the, this literature from 100 years ago, um, you, what you find is that there is an attempt to develop a theory of the organism. And there's a lot of excitement at that time for the reasons I gave you before, right? That the confidence in this deterministic, mechanistic view has eroded in physics because of what's happened in physics, right? Maybe 
the world isn't ultimately deterministic. Maybe it's there's, there's something indeterministic about it, and maybe we need to think about fields, right, instead of uh, structures in physics. And so a lot of biologists got excited about that, and that's why uh, you, you have this confluence, this convergence. It's a community. It's not just individuals. You've got this community of people thinking in this way. And so I've been mining that work, you know, uh, shamelessly saying, well, wow, this is amazing. You know, so, and, you know, I say, we should read this pe these people. So that's that's from where I'm coming from, right? I, I want to revive this organicist motivation to develop a theory of the organism. I think that you could also tell another, uh, you know, even longer story about how, um, the, you know, when you look at at the mechanistic history of biology, there was no reason for a theory of the organism. There is a good reason why that hasn't come up earlier, really, if you're looking at, you know, at earlier centuries, is because if you if if the organism is a machine, there is no need for an autonomous biology, really, for an autonomous theory of biology, because it's a machine, right? It may be much more complex. If it's a machine, we have it. We have it. We have examples of it. You know, that the you know, living machines are far more complex because if you take the Cartesian view, is they're designed by God, and God is a far more smart is a much smarter designer than we are but ultimately we're talking about the same kind of thing qualitatively the same quality different so so what does that mean it means that in principle it is possible to draw on physics chemistry engineering and those are going to be enough the conceptual resources that those sciences give us are going to be enough and sufficient to make sense of, of biology and you know this may seem like an old idea but actually it's very much alive okay it's alive in the way molecular biologists thought about biology it's alive in synthetic biology today so it's it's really not uh, sometimes it's you know darwinian evolution is added there you know like on the top sprinkled on the top as an additional thing but for the most part you know you have this very mechanistic view and yes yeah, so the calls for a theory of the organism that are now emerging essentially arise from maybe an, an implicit recognition that this old machine view of the organism the machine conception of the organism is just not good enough it's just not it's, it's theoretically inadequate right and so to call for a theory of the organism is already to recognize its deficiencies i would say you know, if it really was the case that an organism was a machine, we wouldn't even need to have this conversation. And what's really cool about it is that this call for the organism is coming up in different areas. It's not just in molecular biology, systems biology, but also in evolutionary biology, right? Think of what's going on with the extended synthesis uh, calls. And, you know, all of that is, is if you look at it, uh, it's, it's about bringing back the organism, right? So if you want to explain adaptation, you want to explain inheritance, you want to explain uh, selection, you need to bring the organism back because you can't just eliminate it. And that's Dennis Walsh, for example, writes beautifully in this way, right? It's all about bringing the organism back to the picture. So, you know, what I bring to that conversation, I think, is, is, is that wanting to do that is already a recognition of the sorts of views that we want to leave behind. The, the next piece we wanted to do is sort of walk through your pillars. Your mindset has three different pieces. The first one is about activity as a necessity, a necessary condition for existence, right? And I love it. The problem is that organisms, much like waterfalls or tornadoes, and unlike machines, they don't have an off switch. So this, why is that a pillar? I mean, that's it's just fun to talk about, but, but why do you perceive it as a pillar for your theory? Because it challenges certain intuitions that we, you know, that we have about you know, mechanical intuitions about organisms, right? On the one hand, you know, we, we recognize the idea that organisms don't have an off switch seems, oh, okay, so there's sometimes like a light bulb <laughs> lights up when you think about it because you say, well, of course they don't. And maybe what does that mean? It means that activity is inherent and it's, uh, it's fundamental for its existence. It's not something that you, 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 that you layer on top of its existence. So if you want to explain an organism, you can't just begin, say, with a material characterization, a decomposition of its parts, say, and say, well, you know, you 
which is actually the way molecular biology proceeds, and you know, and a, lot, a lot of biology has proceeded historically, because if you do that, right, and you end up with this extremely exhaustive repository of a catalog of every all the parts. I mean, synthetic biology is doing it with this bio brick initiative when they're trying to you know characterize all the parts. If you do that, then okay, you you get information, you get knowledge out of that, but have we captured the living state? Have we captured that which we ultimately want to explain? Well, no, because the matter is secondary. Matter is actually being turned over. It's being replaced. What really matters is this is the form of organization that enables or makes possible that material exchange. And that's what we need to focus on. And so this whole uh, discussion I have in this part of the of my of the chapter about existence and activity is trying to focus on, on that question of persistence, right? So this is a classic problem in philosophy. What what enables you to say that you're the same person from one day to the next, you know, what given that things change over time and I'm drawing a little bit on on, on how process processual thought can help us get more clear on, on what we should focus on. It shouldn't be matter, it should be something about stability of form ultimately. Right. Um, sorry, I think I'm actually talking about the second lesson, not the first one. Um, oh, the the, fir- the first one. I mean, I can I can biologists. So we 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 always have these examples that we can throw out. When we've got millions of species to work with, it makes it easy to sort of tank uh, ideas, right? Or at least try. So how how should we think in the context of organisms always being on? How do we think about tardigrades? How do we think about viruses? How do we think about prions? Do these exceptions count, or how how does your your work idea work with that? This came up in the review of this paper, actually. Well, what about you know? Oh, you you know? What about these all these entities? And yes, well, okay. So let look. The whole point of this paper is to say that if you think about organisms and streams, that can be helpful. So let's 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 explore that together. Let's see if it is helpful. So let's just say that all the, an organism is some sort of vortex. Okay. If you think of a vortex, then it is obvious, right, that it has to keep moving for it to maintain its integrity. So is that true for organisms? Well, given that organisms are essentially metabolic flows, right, that the entire material constitution is constantly being changed, there seems to be also that exchange, which is seems to be analogous, right, to the case of a vortex or a flame or whatever. But there are examples, right, uh, in biology where you have real cases of stasis, right? So seeds, spores, these are natural ways in which organisms slow down the metabolic rates. Do these represent counterexamples? Well, the argument would be, I mean, to say that would mean to conclude that there is absolutely no metabolic activity taking place. And my understanding of the science is that that's not quite right. We're not, we don't have complete energetic sort of equilibrium in those cases. And almost the non-equilibrium thermodynamics is telling us that that's not possible, simply because theoretically speaking, a steady state is, is, is an irreversible process. Thermodynamics is so useful in biology, it even tells us, it gives us a definition of death, a very simple one. Death is the loss, is the, is the return to equilibrium, is the loss of the loss of that steady state. So if you were to say that an organism was at equilibrium, from a theoretical perspective, you'd seem to be saying that it's that it's dead. So I don't know, maybe it's an empirical question, it's something that we, need, that we can't settle theoretically. We need to work out whether, whether we can ever find a biological system where there's absolutely no energetic transfer at all. And if that's the case, then maybe we would need to revise this lesson. But for the most part, even when you freeze samples, you know, that you don't completely eliminate the energetic exchange, you just slow it down very, very substantially, right? So maybe you will need to bring it down to absolute zero. I don't know. This is something what you will need to work out empirically. One more thing about the first lesson, which is super, super, super important because it may be relevant later on, is that if you have the idea that organisms have to exchange you know, energy with the environment, they have to uh, retain this sort of steady state, then you are bringing, interestingly, a very, very minimal form of normativity into nature. That there is something about 
organisms that they must do this. Now, science traditionally has shied away from that. You know, we don't we don't try to concern ourselves with with anything that seems normative because that doesn't seem scientific. And so biology seems to provide this challenge to the traditional scientific view because it seems to be saying, hey, we're dealing with entities, organisms, where there is a need, like really need. It's not just a metaphorical use of the word need. There is a necessity. It has to do this. If it doesn't do it, it can't stay alive. It's fundamental to its very being. And so if you, if you allow necessity to have a seat at that table about what properties a theory of the organism should have, then you're already allowing a, a potential way of making sense of agency and purposiveness. That's why it's so interesting, because it's a much shorter step once you recognize necessity to recognize that that's a way of the organism of acting on its own behalf, of, of having to do what it needs to do in order for it to stay alive. It's a small step to say that organism must stay alive. You know, it's not just some sort of description of the observer, of the scientist, you know, we could use this language. No, no, no. There's something real about the system that we're capturing by talking in this way. So that's why I think it's super useful to reflect on on, on what the implications, right? That maybe normativity can be potentially naturalized. Uh, you know, it, it can be given a respectable scientific characterization and agency as well. So that's, so that's another another important part of, of the implication that activity is bound to existence. You know, that it's, it, you're not, you know, that there's something there that, that we're just describing. We've been quite interested in, in this idea of agency since talking to Dennis Walsh on the show. As well as Michael Levin. Yeah, Michael Levin, yeah. And, um, you know, if I had to articulate my conception of agency from, from talking to them, it's that organisms themselves are very actively involved in making choices about where to go in the environment and what to do. And in a sense, constructing their own experiences in, in an important way. I guess my question to you is, what, what do you think about this idea overall of agency and, and how does that interface with this idea of organisms as streams, right? Let, let me just put this idea out there that it feels to me like agency could be used as a way to say and to understand how organisms position themselves in the environment in order to sustain the streams that keep them alive. And so is there room here for sort of merging agency wholesale into, into your idea of the theory of the organism? I think that Agency is implied by the idea of the theory of the organism. It's it's something that it's a it's a consequence, right? I think in the normativity also, right? So with the normativity, maybe it is implied that it is possible to talk about what is good and what is bad for an organism on the basis of what the organism needs to do in order to survive. Traditionally, people have been very very careful of talking about what is good and what is bad because it seems to be an anthropomorphic projection. But if it is really the case that the organization itself is dictating what the system has to do in a way that is very different from a machine, because of course a machine, uh, you can talk about what is good for the machine, but when you do that, you're talking about what is good for the user of the machine. So, you know, if your toaster is, to is burning your bread, you know, the machine doesn't really care. It's about, you are the one who cares because you're eating the burnt bread, right? So it's about, it's about the user ultimately, not the, not the system itself. Whereas in the case of the organism, if the bacterium doesn't successfully swim down that sugar gradient, it doesn't get the nourishment it needs, it will stop existing. So it really, it cares. It's not about the, any use, use of that organism. So that's, the case for, for normativity and also for agency. So, so they're related, right? So to be an agent is to recognize a difference between you and the environment, to be able to act in that environment, right? To, uh, to in some sense, engage in causal interactions with the environment. And all of that is a necessary consequence if you are a system that is not at rest, 
if you were a stone, then that's not necessary because you're a stone, you're, you're cool, you're just chilling. If you're a system that you have to constantly act, then you have to be an agent. If you're not an agent, then you can't survive. And again, the nice thing about grounding it in thermodynamics is that you are, again, eliminate that potential objection that you're, you're, you're trying to bring spooky or cult forces to play on, uh, to bear on, on, on this discussion. We're just saying, look, what you have here is a really sophisticated kind of, of dissipative structure that exhibits certain features that are just real by virtue of the, of, of the kind of organization that it is, right? So I think agency, then, this is why it shouldn't be a problematic notion. And the reason why it is, is because we have some sort of, in the back of our minds, this intuition that there's something pseudoscientific about it, that we're not really explaining it, we attribute agency. And this, of course, has to do with the legacy of mechanicism and biology and the legacy of the machine view. I mean, it just, for me, it makes total sense, right? If you think of the world, mechanically, there's no room for agency. The only agent is, is God. If you really take seriously the idea that everything is mechanical, the moment you give up that idea and you have actually a more scientifically informed idea of what nature is like, then agency should not be something we should shy away from. That doesn't mean we should not be rigorous in how we explain it scientifically, but we should recognize if we're good empiricists and we, we, we are guided by what we observe, that we're dealing with entities that have the ability to make decisions or at least act on their own behalves in certain ways. And it is the burden is on us to explain that, not to eliminate it. So a lot of Historically, the attempt has been to eliminate it, to say the cybernetic approach, for example, to say it's all about negative feedback loops. You don't have to worry about any agency because you can explain all of that in terms of complex feedback loops, right? And, uh, and you know, this was a popular idea for much of the late 20th century. So I think that I'm very excited that so many people now are beginning to think that agency has to be something we need to explain. Because to me, it signals a general transition away from this worldview a mechanical view to, a, to the one that I've been defending. Yeah, you know, it's it seems pretty profound in the context of of your theory of the organism is really this. It's an element of this, your second pillar, which we said we were going to talk about and then didn't didn't talk to agency, but I think ended up hitting it. And it's that the persist that persistence emerges from the continuous self maintenance of form. So agency is the the process by which that happens, and it, it ends up it ends up fitting nicely. Yeah. So I think we've tackled that one reasonably well. I wanted to make sure that we give a little bit of time to the last one, which is that order does not entail design. Maybe that's not one we need to hit really hard for the audience here, but it's probably worth saying a little bit. What do you want to make sure that we, we walk away with on that one? Uh, well, maybe one more thing about that second lesson, uh, which could be interesting. So we also should think about this analogies, right? You know, there are many ways in which organisms are different from streams, right? So that's also important, an important part of what we're going to say. No metaphor captures the, the target domain perfectly. The machine one definitely doesn't do it, but this one doesn't either. And so it's all a matter of uh, cost-benefit analysis, right? Which ones help us in particular contexts, which ones help us in another context. And, and you know, if you think of this idea of, of persistence, one thing I discussed in the chapter, which got me really, you know, for a long time thinking about was this, you're familiar with this old ancient thought experiment of the ship of Theseus. Yeah. Love that idea. Yeah. Marty, Marty's a fan. <laughs> yeah. So you got, you got this, this, this ship that, you know, Theseus used. And then after Theseus dies, that ship, they, they still have doing this, this ceremonial voyage, right, for centuries. And of course, as time passes, they need to replace all the parts of the ship. And, you know, then the question is, um, are we still dealing with the same, with the same ship? And, you know, this is, I, I call them Theseian machines. You could refer, you could think a lot of machines in this way. Think of uh, the cathedral clock in, in Prague. It's from the 14th century, uh, but most of its parts have been changed over time. 
time. But you go, you know, go there and you have your your tourist guide and say, wow, you know, from the 14th century, how cool. And but you know, most of what the clock the clock that you see is not from that time, right? And yet we recognize, we think of it, we have the intuition that we're dealing with the same thing. So in what sense are organisms different from Theseian machines? Because what I do in that part of the paper is say, well, maybe the, maybe the advocate of the machine view still has a way to respond and say, well, you know, you're just, you're just dealing with Theseian machines, right? And so I, I show how they're different, right? So I say that, for example, when you have to replace parts of the ship, it's usually because things have happened. There's, there's been an accident that hit some rocks or whatever. Whereas in the case of the organism, that exchange has to happen all the the time it has to it's continuous so that's one change there's something also that very different which is in the case of a, of a machine there's always an agent outside of the machine that is performing those repairs in the case of the organism that's happening inside from the from the inside it's internally replaced right so again a fundamental difference so anyway i don't want to go through all of the ones but just to show that even looking at this analogies can be extremely helpful because looking at how things actually don't seem to be similar enable us to get clear on the on the character that we want to get at, right, the, the, their character. So uh, there's a lot that one could say about persistence, which I think is helpful in developing a theory of the organism. And is there anything else that we should say about order not entailing design? I mean, it does feel like we've hit on a lot of it, but I want to make sure that there's nothing we've left out. Well, I mean, there's so much we could say about this. I've, what I'm working at the moment, actually, is I'm writing um, a short book on, on Schrodinger's What is Life and the impact that it had. And so I could we could talk for hours about this, uh, about, the, <laughs> about the notion of order that Schrodinger was responsible for uh, popularizing and bringing to biology, uh, which is a very interesting one because it's a very different one from the order that he sees in physics, right? So what he says, well, basically he, he distinguishes different forms of order and the order that he thinks is most distinctive of life is one that you don't find in physics, you only find in machines, right? Because in physics, the order is statistical. And the order that you find in biology is preformationist. Everything is encoded or there's always order from order. There's always something existing beforehand that gives rise to the order that you want to explain. And so in that sense, it seems to provide a very different view of order from the dissipative structure dynamic stream of life view, which suggests that order is spontaneously, or you know, that order is not encoded in any molecule. But we, yeah, we did discuss this earlier when we talk about genes, right? So basically the distinction is whether you think that order is encoded in molecules of the system, or whether you think that order is a systemic property and that consequently can't be reduced to any of its individual components. And if that is true, then you can't think about design. The reason why I have the lesson order does not entail design is that for a long time, the only way we had to think about order is by means of design. We just had to go there because there's no other way to explain it. And now we have another way to explain it. So should we turn to implications and such? If you've if you've got the stamina for maybe another fifteen minutes, Dan. We, you know, I can talk as long as you want. So okay. let's <laughs> let, let's go. Here. I love I love this stuff. Great. So, so I think what we want to do now is just ask some sort of broader questions that step away from some of the specific things that you talked about in your chapter and and in in the book. One of them is a question that comes up for us a lot when we've talked to philosophers, and that is, what, what are the practical consequences of these ideas for the way we do science? And, you know, I, I, the way I think about that is, well, okay, if, if enough people adopted your point of view, or if funding agencies started funding projects that incorporated these ideas, what actually would change on the sort of day-to-day -day way that, that people do science? You know, when I give 
talks to scientific audience, that's always a question that comes up. Philosophers don't seem to care about value and use. You know, it's all about, <laughs> about the truth, you know, the reality. And well, scientists are very pragmatic, uh, rightly so. And they say, okay, that's all fine, very good. But how can I translate what you're saying into something that I can use in my everyday work? And it's a, it's a great question. It's not one that I have a, a great answer to because... Well, I mean, okay, I, I can give you the cop-out um, answer, which is that the way I think about philosophy of biology is is basically in terms of a division of labor, right? We have, you know, I'm trying to get clear on on how we should think theoretically about the living world. And it is not something that I'm doing to work out also how that can be translated, of course, but that's a bit of a cop-out answer and I recognize that. Now. But it's just, just to say that it's not something that drives me, okay? Because I don't need funding and I don't need to have, you know, run a lab and generate empirical data because these are not motivations for me. And my motivations are maybe more having to do with truth and having to do with uh, understanding, then it's just not something that, that immediately comes to my mind. So that's probably why I don't have a, such a well-worked out answer to, to these sorts of practical, practically oriented questions. But I can, I can say a couple of things. So for example, the view that I'm advocating is one that requires us to take time seriously. One implication of this at the methodological level is, first of all, the realization that if you are employing methods in your scientific research that eliminate time for the sake of epistemic tractability, then you're not going to be able to come up with a good and accurate picture. Okay, so that's one thing to say. And, and in some of my other work, I've suggested, in a, specifically in the context of molecular biology, one of the reasons why these, this dynamic view is, is acquiring currency is because we now have methods that enable us, for example, to look at what individual cells are doing in real time, what individual molecules inside individual cells are doing uh, in real time. And that's enabling us to have sort of empirical evidence, right, for the sorts of theoretical assumptions that, that I've been suggesting. We need to have uh, appropriate methods to convince many people about the adequacy of these theoretical notions, because the methods that we traditionally use have often ensured that we don't see these things. So if you, you know, if you look at the cell as a static snapshot, you know, you, you see a fixed sample of a cell of the cellular architecture. Of course, you're not going to think that all the organelles are dynamic, steady states and are constantly changing like flows. Of course, you're not going to think that. You know, or if you look at proteins using X-ray crystallography, of course, you're not going to recognize that. Most of these proteins exist in a disordered state in the cell and that they, you know, that you can't infer function from structure because proteins are promiscuous in that way. And so there is a connection between the methods that we've traditionally used and the theories that have been part of how we, we interpret the data. It is very important that we devise the methodological capacity that enables us to to recognize the dynamicity that it really exists in the middle world. I mean, I, I am completely in agreement with you. But, <laughs> not surprising, but it's so non-arbitrary what the time scales are, right? I mean, the levels of organization that one wants to focus on, or especially if you're an integrative biologist like Art and me, where it's almost always two and maybe many levels of organization, you know, you invoke multiple times development. And so the time scale of, of months to years is going to come into play in a lot of cases. But then, of course, time scales of, of minutes and seconds to days, it's twice as expensive to just include one time step in any study, right? <laughs> so already you have the barrier of asking for double the budget to just start to move in the direction, no matter what the technologies are. But it would be great to have a little bit more guidance to sort of 
poke my philosopher colleagues about how to think about this time scale challenge, right? I mean, the, the scales of organization, but then different scales of time given development versus uh, more homeostasis physiological time scales. I mean, I, I'm, I'm completely in agreement with you, but it is non-trivial to have that rubber hit the road. It just becomes so so expensive so quickly to try to do anything with this. And I do worry I mean, in spite of the, the advent of technologies, I do worry about how we're going to make progress, even when we start to accept these ideas as, as holding water, really how, what we're going to do about it. Although, Marty, I mean, maybe maybe one response to that, and I don't know why I'm stepping in here instead of letting Dan answer, but I'll just go, I'll just go with <laughs> go it. Go for it. Maybe the answer is to just reallocate money and effort and time from dissecting machines as collections of parts and just, just stop spending money on that. And, and then spend the money on understanding the streams instead. I mean, that, that's an abstract way of saying it. But. Yeah, but it's sort of, you know, success begets success. So to sequence an organism, you know, there's half the money that's spent on doing that and a lot of inference that's gained just because of the amount of information that comes down, right? So your return on investment is going to, I think it's just going to show up quicker and that's going to continue for a long time. Anything that requires time they're the longer studies to do. They're more expensive to do. I mean, there's all sort of they're more complex. There's so many other elements that for the foreseeable future, I think it's going to be, you know, slow progress. But Dan, I mean, what, what do you what do you think about this, this issue? Well, I, I think that, you know, that it's easier to get funding to get your research funded if you if, if you have a, a simpler picture. Right. So if you say that protein X, say, is necessary for transmitting signal from A to B, that is a clear hypothesis that you can test, and you're more likely to get something like that funded than if you say that protein X has many different potential conformations that exist in a in a in an ensemble of signaling complexes with where you can only assign probabilistic functions to it, right? Which may be what theoretically is what we should say, because that just complicates the situation a great deal. And biologists, are, scientists are under a lot of pressure to come up with empirical results. I mean, that that also applies to why. We have still this this machine view of the of you know of the cell in molecular biology in general that that is it, it gives us a way of acting right it's not just a theory it also tells you how you can engage with it productively um, you know if you assume that there is a direct correlation between structure and function in the way proteins interact say then you can that you can test that or for example if you think that the genes are the only thing that matters when it comes to the order of the cell then that explains why you know we should fund uh, sequencing uh, projects, right? We've got the t methods to do that, so we can just do that. And then the justification for it is that theoretically speaking, that's what we want. If the theory is different, then yeah, it just complicates everything a great deal. I think it also has to do with how familiar certain ideas are to, to us, right? So I think the machine view is extremely an extremely familiar view. And to ask scientists to give up a familiar way of thinking is maybe asking them to do too much because it's just intuitive to assume that you can explain a system in terms of its parts and it's intuitive to think that if you characterize each of the parts in isolation that you can make sense of the whole or it's intuitive to think that there is determinism, that you can, in principle, say what needs to happen on the basis of certain molecular reactions, even if we have other reasons to be skeptical of the of reductionism and determinism, which we do. You know, we've got very good physical reasons to not want to be reductionist and to not want to be determinists. 
and I've written about that in other in other papers. How we're being forced also uh, to to be pushed out of our comfort zone, okay, and to recognize that maybe we do need to think instead of appealing to simple engineering models, right, circuitry and all of this, we maybe instead need to learn a little bit of condensed matter physics and maybe even some complexity theory, maybe some quantum mechanics even, to make sense of what's going on. And if you say that to biologists, they're not going to be very happy because it means, uh, you know, enhancing the conceptual toolbox that we use. It means actually learning this stuff. You have to go back and learn something new. <laughs> right. So and I, I think this is really important, right? And I think this explains why it is that that even though many of the ideas that I'm suggesting, I don't think they, they have to be so controversial, but that there's a big sort of cost that comes with really taking it seriously at the methodological level. Yeah, completely agreed. But maybe to end on a positive note, maybe you've identified a path by which we start to integrate this processual way of thinking into biology. If you are allowed, I mean, maybe George Mason, this is an opportunity. Let's say tomorrow the dean comes to you, the chair comes to you and says, hey, guess what? You get to teach introductory biology. How would you change that so that the next generations of biologists are already set up to be receptive to these kinds of approaches where all the inertia that you've been, you've been talking about isn't really there? My one sentence answer is teach them HPS as part of the biology curriculum. Teach them history and philosophy of science. If you want to have good, thoughtful, reflective scientists, have them take courses in the philosophy of science and courses in the history of science for the reasons that I've, I think that our discussion illustrates. The history of science gives you the awareness that the knowledge that you have isn't inevitable. Things may change. You know, there's, there's no one inevitable way to look at an organism. And that's what history does. It liberates you from the necessity to see things the way they are now, because they weren't, you, they weren't always that way. And what philosophy does is enables you to be more clear in the assumptions that you bring in your ex to your explanations to be to be more thoughtful and reflective and explicit about your about your assumptions what you take to be a, an adequate explanation you know and this relates to things like all the discussion about about mechanism you know what's the mechanism mechanistic insight you know i hear so many of my scientist colleagues saying well you know i got this paper rejected because the editorial uh, the editor said that i was just i just offered a description and not a mechanism and you know it's not clear to me how they, these are all areas where philosophers can help right so let's get let's let's sit down and think about what does it mean to look at a mechanism, right? Or what, what is an explanation? So, so what I would do is, is very simply uh, make sure that the next generation of scientists are well aware of these things. They're well aware, for example, of, of, of the use of metaphors and models. That metaphors, to say that something, how do people normally talk about metaphors? They say, well, it's just a, it's just a metaphor, as if, it's, as if we don't have to think about it. A serious philosophical understanding of how science works demonstrates that metaphors are not a choice, okay? It's the way we make sense of new phenomena. What, what is scientific discovery is coming to terms with new phenomena. What do, what do metaphors do? They enable you to get traction on something unfamiliar by seeing it through the lens of something that is familiar, so you can't escape it. Metaphors are everywhere. So the question isn't not to, not to appeal to metaphors. The question is to be aware of them and to be aware that different metaphors are going to emphasize certain aspects of the phenomenon over others because you never have complete isomorphism because otherwise it wouldn't be a metaphor. You already, in using metaphors, there's difference, right? So to recognize that, and um, yeah, and, and to try to, another thing I'm very interested in, in my work is to try to bring theory back into biology. I mean, theory has such a bad rap in biology and it also didn't used to be the case. So I'm actually collaborating with some, with some colleagues in, in Germany. We're actually developing what hopefully will also become a book where we're going to tell the story of, of theoretical biology. So this is really interesting. So theoretical biology nowadays is, is usually associated with certain, you know, slightly obtuse mathematical formalisms that are of little value to most experimental biologists. That didn't used to be the case. So 100 years ago, 
when theoretical biology emerged, and it emerged because biologists wanted to do for biology what physicists had done, you know, to distinguish between empirical biology and theoretical biology. When it would emerge 100 years ago, it was all about, hey, let's get clear on the concepts that we use. Let's get clear on how these different areas of knowledge relate to one another. There's a nice story that one can tell historically about how that was forgotten. And what we had after the Second World War is this, this mathematization uh, projects, right? So the reason why I mentioned this here is that what I do, I like to think of it as theory. You know, I don't, I don't recognize the fundamental difference between philosophy and science. I think good philosophy or biology is basically theoretical work. It's not mathematical work. But it's theoretical work. You know, we're trying to get clear on the theories that concepts that we use. So what would I what would I do? I would try also to uh, rehabilitate this dirty word, theoretical biology, and show that well, that's what we're talking about. I mean, this whole discussion has been that, right? A theory of the organism. So that's what we need to become aware of. That we should feel more comfortable having theoretical discussions. And it doesn't only all need to be about showing each other the data that we've produced. You know, that's why I was you know, I often find very limiting in, uh, in some science, science conferences that everyone's really excited about showing their data and all the discussions about methods and protocols and all of that. Why not have more conversations about theory, about assumptions, about the sort of explanations that we want to find? You know, what is an acceptable explanation? Do we agree with that? All of those things is what, what I would try to do. But it's a pipe dream. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to take your yeah, class. I'll, I'll sign up for sure. <laughs> can, can, can I zoom in? <laughs> Great. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. Thanks so much. Before we end, we we always like to give our guests the opportunity to say anything else that we haven't haven't touched on that you've been thinking about. I would like to say. Is there anything anything else? Well, it's been a very wide ranging conversation. Of course, we could have gone into more detail uh, about any of uh, you know the issues that came up. But no, I'm I'm. It's been really enjoyable, very stimulating, and I love talking to scientists. And uh, I think that we should. Philosophers should do that more, and biologists should do that also more. And um, I hope that that yeah, that we don't. This is not the only time that we meet. It'd be nice to be able to have the opportunity to discuss other things. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I hope we can stay in touch about the theory of the organism. Absolutely. So be great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or give a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thank you to Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paradin for producing the episode and to Steve Lane, who manages the website. Thanks also to interns Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, Natasha Damright, and Kyle Smith, who help with social media, script writing, and editing. Keating Shimeri produces our amazing cover art. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Baron, Tieran Costello. 